This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Friday, September 7th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Donald Trump has compared himself to Abraham Lincoln. He was talking about the Gettysburg Address and giving some sort of third accurate, one-third, meaning 33% accurate folk history of the Gettysburg Address and how it wasn't accepted. And then 50 years later, it was remembered as being genius. And he was predicting, Trump was, that his words and his policies will soon be remembered in a similar vein. Maybe... I think it's more likely that his performances will have the same warm associations that our American cousin does to this day. That could happen. And remember uh, a year ago, about a year and a half ago, Trump was touting his tax plan and he said this. 55 years ago this week, President John F. Kennedy, a Democrat, launched a historic effort to pass sweeping top-to-bottom tax cuts. A half a century later, we're reminded that lowering taxes is neither a Republican or Democrat idea, but an American principle and an American idea. So there's the Kennedy comparison. But I got to say, and I think you agree, President Trump, he has nothing on Lincoln. And President Trump is not even close to the oratorical style of Kennedy. In fact, I would say Trump doesn't even speak as well as Lincoln Kennedy, the former defensive lineman of the Oakland Raiders. I mean it. Here's Lincoln Kennedy speaking to a group of students. And what I mean by that is the world is ever-changing. Versus... We're making steel again. All right, here's Lincoln Kennedy. Because we get so caught up in the limelight and the lifestyle of wanting to make as much money as possible. Versus... The elite. The elite. Why are they elite? I have a much better apartment than they do. What's the better message there? And then even when speaking about speaking. My mom used to tell me that I should go into something with communications because I I was a good speaker. Versus. I know words. I had the best words. Mr. President, you're no Lincoln Kennedy. On the show today, I spiel about the successful bailout of a decade ago that we all seem to think was just a mere example of profligacy. But first, Yuval Harari is a professor of history at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. His previous bestsellers and his new work reveal a preference for steady political leadership over the distracting showman. But he explains why we like the showman. It's because we're hardwired for a show, or at least a good story. Yuval Harari's 21 Lessons, up next. Yuval Noah Harari is a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. His first two books were Sapiens, which was about man, and Homo Deus, which was about man's ability to become God. His new book is called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. But you know, I think the progression is this. Man, man is God. And now let's look at what's going on and say, oh man, oh my God. Hello, Professor Harari. (laughs) How are you? Uh, hello, it's good to be here. It's a very good in- introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I'll quote the first sentence of the first chapter back to you. Humans think in stories rather than in facts, numbers, or equations. And the simpler the story, the better. And that is why, though your book is about many things, I think it is, to me, mostly about this thing, which is examining 
the story of nations and the story of religion and morality, examining the stories as you've done and asking, wow, how did this story take this particular turn at this particular time? Yes, I'm, I think that what really makes the difference between humans and all other animals is the enormous impact of stories and fictions on how humans behave. And this is basically why we control the world and not the chimpanzees. Stories enable us to cooperate in very large numbers. As long as everybody believes in the same story, everybody obeys the same law. And really, if you, if you examine any large-scale human cooperation, you find some fiction at the basis. It's most obvious in the case of religions, but it's the same with nations and even with economic systems. The dollar is also just a fictional story that billions of people happen to believe. Yeah, the, and the Turkish lira, although I guess 50% of people believed it more last year than this year. <laughs> um, now, in Homo Deus, you talk about, I think, Peugeot, right, the car company, and you, you point out that you could take away every bit of car and every factory, and we'll still have this idea of Peugeot, so Peugeot exists. I was thinking, I don't know if you know this, but the American uh, sponge cake snack Twinkie, this exactly happened to. Oh. They stopped making Twinkies. For a time, there were no more Twinkies. But, you know, because it's this, it has, there's the intellectual property survived and the idea of Twinkies survived. And I haven't done the data set, but I would imagine that references to Twinkies didn't actually dip when sales of Twinkies weren't going on. It exactly proves your point. And I think it brings me to Donald Trump in this way. He's a brand. He's an idea. And so if politics are an idea and we have a man who operates really explicitly on understanding that all I'm doing is expressing an idea, not an idea in the service of policy, just an idea in this or a story in the service of stories, there is something to say that, of course, he's going to be somewhat successful. Yeah, but this is definitely not something new or something unique to Donald Trump. Right. If you look at emperors and kings and sultans centuries and thousands of years ago, they too were a story far more than a human being or a physical body. If Even if the king does nothing, as long as the people believe the story, they are likely to stay loyal. The opposite case is a king that uh, really works hard for his people, but he's not, very, uh, he's not a very good storyteller, or he doesn't have a very good uh, publicity machine, and people don't know it, and they think that, uh, that he's bad. And uh, even though their situation is, 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 is quite good, they might still rebel and reject him. And in fact, ma in many cases, revolutions actually happen when things improve, not when, not when things uh, uh, go down, when things are at the worst, people are just busy with survival. Mm -hmm. And also we see that in many revolutions, it's not the poorest members of society that stage the revolution. It's often the most ambitious members of society that see an opening and, and think that, hey, I can use this situation to advance myself. So do you think, I was talking to Edward Luce about this, and let's bring it into the realm of the more tangible and the more recent. One of the salient aspects of the uh, turn to populism all throughout Europe and Brexit and Trump is that things just weren't that bad. Just if you compare them in absolute terms, things like poverty or unemployment or just uh, compare to past generations, you know, life expectancies and the delivery of goods, things aren't great, but they're really not so bad to cause this great upheaval. And I think Luce's explanation 
uh, had more to do with expectations. There's a lot of psychological, um, a lot of psychological study about the important thing is not the absolutes, but what we expect. But I think you're saying that the story of progressive liberalism or the story of whatever structure of governments just isn't wasn't uh, sufficient to go up against this story of populism. Yes, I definitely agree. I mean, if you look at the world from the long-term perspective, humankind and certainly the Western world have never been in a better situation than in the early 21st century. It's mostly about expectations. One of the difficulties with humans and with organizing humans is that human satisfaction doesn't really depend on objective conditions. It depends on expectations. And what we are seeing right now is really a breakdown or a vacuum of stories. In the 20th century, you can say that there was a big political battle between three stories, each of which tried to explain the world, the past, the present, and the future. These were the fascist story, the communist story, and the liberal story. Then fascism was knocked out in the Second World War, and the second half of the 20th century was this huge battle between the communist story and the liberal story. And then communism collapsed. And for about 20, 25 years, we were in this situation where there is just one story which claims to explain everything. And this is why people talked about the end of history, where the whole world will be just liberal democracies cooperating in a free market and, and, and so forth. And then what happened is that the liberal story collapsed and the vacuum is currently filled not by new visions about the future of humankind. It is filled by nostalgic fantasies yeah. which are uh, sold to people by populists all over the world. They are extremely dangerous because they are unable to confront the real problems of the 21st century. Okay, so you're saying a few things. One is that liberalism flourished when it had an opponent and it was clearly superior to its opponent, fascism and then communism, which leads me to believe it needs an opponent. But why, why do we think that it's, it's failing against its new opponent, which is atavistic populism? Do you, do you think it's in crisis? I mean, the book doesn't seem to be downplaying the threat. I think it is in crisis, but uh, so far not as severe as yeah. in, in, in the previous times. And previously, liberalism showed a remarkable flexibility and a remarkable ability to recover. And this is largely because it is the most flexible of the stories and of the worldviews. It's much less rigid than fascism and communism. And actually, liberalism, to some extent, recovered and made a comeback by embracing and incorporating some of the best ideas of the fascists and of the communists, such as the welfare state, which wasn't part of the liberal core program in the 19th right. century, but became a part of the liberal core program towards the end of the 20th century. So help me with this, because my politics here in the United States would probably be called moderate Democrat or centrist Democrat, something like that. And I subscribe to those general policies, though I have exceptions here and there, because I just think it's the way to deliver the most good for the most people. I know it's not the most exciting, and so I know it's vulnerable come election time. That is why someone like Barack Obama is a really good steward for my uh, form of government, which is he could be exciting enough and inspirational enough 
while still sticking to the knitting of, you know, pretty good policies well, yeah, yeah, for pretty good people. Exciting is not necessarily a good thing. No, I know, I know. Yeah. This is my point. Yes, it's so vulnerable. It's vulnerable to the person who's more exciting. I was, I felt a little mm-hmm. bit blessed to have Barack Obama being interesting and exciting and compelling, even though his policies were, you know, mundane but good. I just, I just worry about the uh, idea of mundane but good policies and will they have any chance in uh, America or the Western world. I sure hope so, because, you know, as a historian, I can say that people just forgot the lessons mm. of the mid-20th century. Politics in the 1930s were very, very exciting. And uh, the lesson that people took from that in the 1950s and 60s and onwards is that we don't want exciting politics. We want boring politicians who do the jobs and provide education and welfare and welfare and sewage systems, we don't want exciting demagogues. And um, maybe people forgot this lesson. And you know, there is a Chinese curse. Uh, may you live in interesting times. Yeah. May you live in exciting times. This, this is a curse. The main reason I think that um, the liberal story is now faltering is that it fails to provide any meaningful vision for the future of humankind. Uh, nobody now provides a meaningful vision for the future of humankind. Whereas in the 20th century, politics was a battle between grand visions for the future. At present, no politician on either the right or the left provides any viable, credible, meaningful vision for where humankind will be in 2050. Two main, maybe most important changes that are going to to uh, to shape the future of humanity, artificial intelligence and biotechnology, they are not yet part of our political discussion. And um, so what you, the only thing you get is these nostalgic fantasies about let's go back to some imaginary golden age. And this is definitely not what is going to happen. Yeah. I mean, my big fear is that when populism runs out of steam, and it becomes clear that the populists are unable to solve any of the major problems we face, they are not going to acknowledge it. They are going to blame it on somebody, either traitors from within or enemies from without or a combination of the two. This is the reason why we failed to realize our our, our nostalgic fantasy. And this is a recipe for trouble. Well, it's yeah, it's clear to me that that is what they will try. And then our institutions have to be robust enough to withstand that. And so far in America, I think they are. But, you know, it'll be a stress test. I do want to go back for a second to the idea of, yes, it's true. In the ancient days, people would uh, set upon the woman who was uh, seen to be riding a broom. But the difference, I think, and the frustrating thing is back then, a bad thing would happen, the 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 grain would, uh, the, the, the harvest wouldn't come in or the animals would die from a disease they didn't understand. And so they'd cast out for someone to blame. It see, my problem is these days things are good and the animals aren't hmm. dying and we have so much attention and yet so much blame. No, there is one thing which is not going well at all. And, and this is the future. Above all, the major concern that fuels populism in the West is the feeling, which is quite accurate of many people, that they are being left behind and that Mm -hmm. the future doesn't need them. Uh, Revolutions of of artificial intelligence and biotechnology, that they will increasingly make more and more people irrelevant. 
I would say that the big battle in the 20th century was against exploitation, but the big battle of the 21st century may be against irrelevance. You know, a century ago, things may have been very much, much worse mm -hmm. for the ordinary person, but everybody told him, the fascists, the communists, the liberals, they all told the ordinary person that he or she is the hero of the future. You are the most important. A baby born today, I have absolutely no idea what kind of job uh, that baby will have when he or she are 40 or 50, or if they have any job. I'm not even sure if he or she are the right words. Uh, gender yeah. might become <laughs> so fluid, uh, thanks to technology and also thanks to social changes, that it will be obsolete to divide humanity into men and women. Uh, life expectancy, the human body, the human brain, they could all change in, in, in very deep ways. Though uh, 20 years ago, there was a very famous article published about it, and the title was, The Future Doesn't Need You. Yeah. And for many people, this is much worse than being exploited. Yuval Noah Harari is the author of 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Hey, want to know what a good investment would have been in 2008? Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. The two mortgage lenders were distressed assets. Back then, they had $5 trillion in loans underwritten. And if they had gone belly up, oh boy, what we call the Great Depression these days, we would have called that the eh depression by comparison. I mean, at least they gave soup out to people if you waited long enough in line. If you had gotten in on the ground floor of that Freddie and Fannie investment, I don't know, for yourself, for your fellow American, for the economy, for the system, guess what would have happened? You'd have made money because the cost of the bailout would be far less than the proceeds returned on that investment. How do I know? Because it happened. And who made the investment? You did. And I did. We all did. The American government did. In 2008, Freddie and Fannie went into conservatorship. And over the next few years, there was funds given to these two. They totaled $191 billion. But then they pulled out of the nosedive and began paying it back. And so far, Fannie Mae has paid back over $167 billion, and Freddie Mac has paid back $112 billion. The net profits, over $88 billion. We're coming up to the 10th anniversary of a lot of the fallout around the Great Recession, and the Freddie and Fannie success story drew my attention today. And that success, that's why politicians like North Carolina Republican Virginia Fox looks back and says that bailing them out was the right thing to do. Oh, no, she doesn't. Here's what she said then, and she has not changed her tune today. We have reckless financial institutions, Freddie Mae, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, and those others who are at fault must be held accountable. Now, I want to be fair. That wasn't directly about the bailout. That was from a floor speech on October 3rd, 2008, floor of Congress. Freddie and Fannie had already been put into conservatorship about a month before. But what that floor vote was about was a bigger, bolder bailout, TARP. 
You probably, I hope you remember TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program. And to enact TARP, Congress would have to pass the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008. But some Republicans were very upset that Freddie and Fannie had been rescued. And when they got the chance to expand that rescue to other parts of the economy, they said no. They said hell no. Representative Fox was among the two-thirds of Republicans and almost 40% of Democrats who voted against the bill. Why did they vote against the bill? Shouldn't we let people suffer for their own mistakes? Yes, we should. Starting with the Wall Street executives who exacerbated this problem. That was California Republican David Dreyer. He voted against the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act. Well, he voted against it the first time. But then, a few days later, he was among the 30 Republicans and 30 Democrats who changed their votes and allowed the act to be passed and TARP to exist. So why'd he change his vote? Again, David Dreyer. As Monday's vote went down, it took the Dow down with it. Anyone who watched CNBC's coverage saw a direct juxtaposition. One half of the screen showed this House floor. The other half of the screen showed the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. With each new no vote, the Dow lost points and greater panic spread throughout the trading floor. By the end of the day, as we all know, the Dow dropped 777 points or $1.2 trillion. Let, let me repeat that, Madam Speaker, more than $1.2 trillion lost on that day. So credit Dreyer for, I don't know, watching CNBC or gritting his teeth and voting for this necessary package. But let's also note that most Republicans, including ones who would come to define the economic thinking in their party over the next decade, were not swayed, were not swayed by an 800-point drop. There was Tom Price, who you might remember as a member of the Trump cabinet before being bounced for his spending habits. He voted against both bills because he wanted these solutions rather than the dreaded government stepping in. At the beginning of this 10, 11 days ago, I stated that we need to make sure that we adhere to at least three fundamentals. One is that taxpayers were protected. Two is that private equity, that the private marketplace had an opportunity to get into and assist in fixing this. Now, after those two, you really need to hear the third. I'll tell you the third. It was this. And three, that there was a, an exit strategy so that we didn't end up at the end of the day with a large bureaucracy that was continuing forever and ever and ever. And that's what I want to talk about. We did have an exit strategy with TARP. In fact, we've basically exited. The program was billed as a $700 billion program. If there was one criticism of TARP from economists like Paul Krugman and even from some legislators like Barney Frank, it's that if those guys had gotten their wish, what was TARP should have been even bigger. But you saw how the votes went. It was as big as it could have been. And of the $700 billion authorized for disbursement, less than $450 billion was dispersed. And of the $450 billion dispersed, more than $400 was paid back. Let me read from the CBO's latest report. Yeah, I know, it's exciting. Mike Reed CBO reports. The U.S. financial system was in a precarious position when TARP was created, and the transactions envisioned and ultimately undertaken entailed substantial financial risk for the federal government. Nevertheless, the TARP's net realized costs have proven to be near the low end of the range of possible outcomes anticipated at the program's outset, in part because investment loans and grants made to participating institutions have helped to curtail its costs. Some of the programs ran a profit. 
AIG took up a big chunk of the money. Some of the home bailouts to individuals did too. Those and the auto bailout, they didn't really help the government's balance sheet, but they did greatly improve the economy. They improved the balance sheets of people. And when I say they helped the economy, I don't mean an abstract number or 4.1% growth, 3.7% growth. They demonstrably improved the lives of Americans, which is precisely what the government's supposed to do. And so what? What have we learned? Well, for years, you could get out there and slam tarp and get a round of applause. It was a go-to line in the 2008, 2010, 12, probably up to the 14 election. By 2016, even though the evidence was in, a certain brand of politician could still say something about government bailouts and tarp and still get people in their audience thinking that that guy, I'll say guy, was right. But that guy was wrong. TARP worked, and yet it never became a go-to example of success. It's just another of what I think is this big problem in America. Our flaws are our flaws, but among those flaws is the fact that we never credit ourselves for properly addressing our flaws. To this day, no politician in a swing state or a swing district can bring up TARP and expect to get any mileage out of it. And you can still get a laugh at a certain type of political rally by cracking a Reagan-era joke about the scariest words being, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. When the opposite of that punchline might be the very reason that the people laughing have a job and can make their house payments. No politician is hanging an anti-TARP vote around the neck of an opponent. No politician is saying, I was for those Freddie and Fannie bailouts. Woohoo! They should be. They should be able to hurt someone who made the wrong vote. If you took a wrong, backwards, harmful vote, you should suffer by being wrong on that vote. That should be a disincentive, if you're a politician, for taking such votes in the future. But it's not a disincentive. Voters do not vote on the good or bad decisions of their elected officials as much as they vote for which politicians they identify with and then trust those politicians to get the details right. And that is a pretty bad decision in its own right. And that's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They have heard of Twinkies. They do not know what chocodiles are possibly because of poaching or habitat decline. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's partial to the ugly stepsister of the Twinkie, the Drake's Dreamy. The gist, you know, between the yodel and the Little Debbie's Swiss roll, it's quite hard to consume a small cylindrical frosted cream-filled chocolate snack cake without feeling a vague guilt over cultural appropriation. And then Hostess comes in with their version of such a cake, the ho-ho. No. Just no. I'm the ho-ho. Oom-peru-de-peru-du-peru. And thanks for listening.